God, we know that you could do far more than we could ever think or imagine. We trust that you are here in this space and really anywhere we go, for there's nowhere we can escape your presence. Help us now to become more aware of what you would have to say to us as we spend time reflecting on our faith as a community and the work that you're doing in our lives. Uh, God, that you would speak to each one of us this morning, regardless or in spite of what I have to say, and that you would make uh, the words of my mouth pleasing to you and the meditations of all of our hearts pleasing to you. This might be a time where we can lay aside our ego, lay aside our pride, lay aside those things that would... um, Uh, make us feel that the world is centered around us and help us become more aware of the other in your presence in this world and in other people and in this space. You are God and we are not. And for that, we are grateful. In your name, amen. You guys ever ever take those uh, social media tests? Um, You know, they're really great for collecting data on you that they can then use to advertise to you. You know that, right? So I usually don't, but you know the test that I'm taking, that I'm talking about, you know, like it's just like which Lord of the Rings character you are, and you answer a bunch of random questions. Legolas, turns out, I went and took it. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like, you know, I'm not sure if that's the guy. I felt like it was right, though. Like, it, you know, I feel pretty good about that if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings. Or like, what kind of breakfast food you would be if you were a breakfast food. I don't know, like, what kind of a Stranger Things character you are. You know what test I'm talking about? Well, I was thinking about that, that kind of test, and uh, we're kind of in a series where we're playing around with this metaphor of homes, right? And I was like, well, what kind of home would you be? Or what kind of faith, if your faith was a home, what kind of home would it be? And I wish there was a test where we could answer a bunch of questions and it would say, well, your faith, based on what you believe and how you believe it, would be like this. It got me thinking, and you're going to go down a little rabbit trail with, uh, with me today, uh, because I started thinking about the different types of homes that are in the Bible and some of the places that uh, famous biblical characters lived in, and they lived in a variety of different places. So I think this is helpful. Um, I imagine if I took the test, it'd look like this. Can you bring that, that first slide up? You know, which house would you be? And it would show these pictures. And then you answer a bunch of questions, and it would say, you're this type of house. What, what house do you think you would get if you, if you ended up with a house? Just shout it out. Which house would you want to be? The mansion? All right, all right. Any van, van people out here? Hey, I love it because there's that meme where, you know, any SNL, you know, Chris Farley, if you don't change your life, you're going to live in a van down by the river. Any government cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went and rewatched it. I thought about playing a clip. I'm not going to. You're welcome. But, um, you know, like nowadays, it's like, well, if you have $45,000, you could live in a van down by the river. And they're pretty nice vans. But um, I was thinking about, uh, you know, what kind of house your faith would be. um, But also, the kind of house you live in kind of tells you a little bit about somebody. There's certain assumptions you can make or certain, you know, standards. So I was looking, thinking about biblical characters. Let's put the first one up. Uh, w- w- Moses, for example. Can we do, I think Moses is first, right? Yeah, Moses. So, you know, what, where did Moses live? You remember the story of Moses? He was a, a prince of Egypt. That's how the story goes. He runs away, you know, and eventually delivers God's people. Then they wander in the wilderness. So, there's really two ways you could answer this. Uh, he lived uh, at one point in his life in a mansion, and then the rest of his life probably in some version of a tent, 
right? So that kind of tells you, like, that's an interesting trajectory for somebody's life. I don't know if that's the one you've signed up for, your goals is to start in a mansion and end up in a tent, but that was Moses. Another one, um, let's see, David. You remember David? David was one of the, the, the third, or the second, the, the first, the second king of Israel. He was very popular, um, very popular king. Um, he, his son Solomon eventually took over. Well, um, you know, he uh, would almost be the opposite. He's probably spent most of his life in a mansion. You can put that up. Um, although, you know, you could say that he started his life in a tent, most likely, as nomadic people and living in a tent and then ended up in a mansion. And you can, you know, this is actually very significant because David wanted to build God a home. And during the time of Moses, God's home, so to speak, was in a tent, right? And then David looks at his great mansion. And he's like, God, we really need to build you a nicer house. And God tells David, no, that he's fine with a tent. You know, there's some significance to this conversation. But eventually David builds God a mansion um, with gold, and you know, that becomes the temple, et cetera. Uh, think about uh, Rahab. You remember her? This would have been right before David, and when they're entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and they come to Jericho, and you sing the song where the walls come tumbling down, which is another example of how we take a very violent biblical story and teach it to our children like it's a nursery rhyme. But nursery rhymes tend to be violent, so I guess it's okay. And uh, um, they destroy an entire city, but except for Rahab, right? because she helped God's people, she hid them, and she was kind of living in the wall, most likely. So I would put her in an apartment, most likely. Um, that makes sense for me. Uh, if she was living today, she'd be in an apartment. Let's jump to the New Testament. Peter. Where would you put Peter? A disciple of Jesus. Um, he uh, wandered with Jesus, but eventually, um, one of the stories I remember of Peter is him climbing to the roof of a house where he has a vision. So I would imagine that Peter most likely was a you know, good single-family home that he had. Um, we don't really have records that he traveled as, you know, I don't know if he traveled a bunch, certainly not as much as Paul, which is another one. Where would you put Paul? Well, you could easily say tent, right? Because if you remember the biblical story of Paul, he was a tent maker. But I, I'm going to give him, I'm going to actually put him in a van, and, and I got a good reason for this, because as a, you know, the nomadic people lived in tents, they lived off the land, part of the tent dwelling is living off the land, Paul didn't live off the land, he, uh, he was an urbanite, and uh, so he traveled from city to city, but you know, like he wasn't living off the land, he was living off of the hospitality of other people, so most likely he was either a couch surfer or a, a sleeping van. It raises another, an additional question, one more question, what about Jesus? What house did Jesus live in? I was thinking about this. And um, I couldn't think of a story of Jesus, including his birth, by the way, that took place in his family home. It's just interesting. What's, what's additionally interesting with Jesus is that you could find him in all of these types of residences. You know, he spent time with the rich. He spent time with the nomads, the urbanites the people of middle class who lived in apartments, the single family. Like he, you could find Jesus in all of these homes, right? But there wasn't, there wasn't one that necessarily perfectly fits him. If anything, maybe the tent. There's this beautiful passage where Jesus says, foxes have holes, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Often it's talked about how Jesus was homeless. I was thinking about this, these different homes. We're in a series where we're talking about faith deconstruction. And we've been talking about the container we hold our faith. Do you, do you remember this from the first week? We build a container. What's inside is most important. 
our faith, um, the, the, the presence of God, the person of Jesus, uh, the, the, the things that we do inside the container are most important, but you still have to have a container to hold it. And that container that you hold it is all of your beliefs and practices. I believe this about God. I believe this about people. I believe this about what is right and wrong. And so you build a structure that it becomes a set of boundaries that hold your faith. Now, the faith that it's holding is most important, but you build a structure. And today, as we continue our conversation about what it means to dismantle that container and give you tools to build it back up, the question I want you to ponder is, what container are you building? Is it something as simple as a tent that you can just pop up? Or something as secure and big as, say, a mansion? I, uh, I know a lot of Christians, uh, I hope I don't lose you in this metaphor, sorry guys, but I know a lot of Christians who love to build mansions, um, lots of walls, lots of, I mean, the, the amount of energy and work and labor that goes into building that big of a home for often a very small family, it's immense. And you know, the problem with mansions is, is as soon as you have something that big, it, it costs an immense amount of money to maintain. I looked it up. Mansions uh, that are over a million dollars that are, I forget the exact amount. I think million's actually a little low. So it might be higher than that. But what is considered a mansion is usually on average between $10,000 to $20,000 a month to maintain. Who still wants a mansion? <laughs> Just the, that's after you bought it, you know? But you, you just think about all, you know, some of us are homeowners here, you know what it costs to maintain a house, utilities and maintenance and all of this sort of stuff. But, uh, um, you know, to maintain a mansion, it, it costs, and then it costs like, that includes all the money it takes to protect it. You build all this stuff, and then, so you put an immense amount of energy into maintaining and protecting. Now, I don't want to get too preachy, but that feels like some versions of Christianity. We build something so big that we value so much that I have to spend the majority of my time protecting it and maintaining it. Sometimes we'd call this institutionalism. Most denominations, including the one that I'm a part of, is guilty of this. I'm not shy in saying that you know, I met this church as well as it's not unique to us, but any denomination, including non-denominational Baptist church, churches, have, you know, operate and they build something that takes a lot of energy to maintain. Now, it's nice, it's comfortable, marble floors, but it doesn't feel like the way of Jesus. If Jesus had a home, it'd be probably closer to a, a camper van or, or a tent, something that's mobile. And it's a very different type of place to live, isn't it? People who, uh, there's this whole movement now to move to like camper vans or tiny homes. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And that's what I'm trying to get to right now. Some of the reasons is, is people want to be able to live life. You know, you build a mansion you, or, or even just a big home or whatever, you have to spend a lot of time there and you have to spend a lot of, you have to make a lot of money and you have to keep working. But if you downsize and you go to something really small and mobile, you can actually go out into the world and explore. You can go hiking and camping and meet new people and experience new cultures. And that feels a lot more like Jesus than just settling down and building your own little empire, right? And, and I think that's, that's really interesting to me because there are some versions of Christianity that tries to build something and then spends the majority of its energy to protect it. But there are other versions of Christianity 
that downsizes to what's most important and is so flexible at that point that they can spend the majority of their time out in the world interacting, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? I bring this up for one additional reason. As I think about faith deconstruction, this process of jettisoning long-held beliefs, what I was thinking about this is I know this is a traumatic experience. We talked a lot about that last week. It can be very traumatic for you. It can be very traumatic when you're in the midst of it. And, and most people aren't, if you're here, you're probably, there's a good chance you're not in the midst of it. You're somewhere on the other side. What I have found, people have trouble coming to church when they're in the midst of it. Now, if you're here and you are in the midst of it, I am so glad you're here. But I know many people who can't even come you know, into a church when they're in the midst of it. Uh, somewhere, they're, they're somewhere else. But when I think about this process of jettisoning long-held beliefs, um, it could be traumatic, and I'm trying in this series to give you tools that make it seem more normal. I'm just showing my cards here. That makes it seem more normal, that makes it seem less traumatic, that makes it seem, you know, more palatable. That, I'm, that's what we're trying, that's one of the, my goals in this series is like, hey, this is okay, you don't have to freak out about it, it's fine. It's also okay if you freak out about it, but I'm also letting you know, like, this is a normal thing. And here's one more tool today. Faith deconstruction is a lot like downsizing. Usually when people experience faith deconstruction, they're not adding things to their faith, they're, they're removing things. And usually, if they remain in the faith, which sometimes people can't, it's usually because they've downsized, which means they've asked the question, what's most important? Think about Jesus. This is, this is something Jesus can help us with. Jesus, fluent in the whole Old Testament, all of these rules, all of these structures, all of these practices, all of these expectations. And somebody comes up to him and asks him one time, well, of those, what's most important? You all remember his answer, right? What, if, if Jesus had to boil it all down and downsize his entire faith to a simple line, what was his answer? Come on, there's someone here who knows it. Yeah, love God and love other people. Can we put that verse up there? I think I've got it in one of the slides. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy here. This is the first and greatest commandment. So if I had to boil down all of these Old Testament rules, all of, you know, all of these laws, it's to love God with your heart, soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, the second is like it. And here he quotes Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he says. He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything hangs on these two commandments. The law and the prophets. The law being, you know, uh, the, the, some of the Old Testament passages in the Pentateuch, etc. The prophets being things like Micah and Isaiah. He says all of the whole gist of the Old Testament story is trying to get you to understand that the most important thing in life is to love God and love your neighbor. Here's why I say this. Two weeks ago, we talked about things that we cut out of our faith, things that we inherited maybe from Christians in the 1950s or maybe from our patriarchs in the Old Testament. You know, we, we talked about even the difference between those. But some things in our faith that we've inherited, that we were taught, aren't things that we need to hold on to. And I told you that I was going to give you a simple metric on how you decide it. And here's what I want you to hear that's very important. When we cut things out of our faith, when we jettison you can do whatever you want, first off. I mean, like, I'm very bad at telling people what to do. I'm just telling you, from, as a pastor of Central City Church, here's my advice. 
don't throw things away just because you don't like them. And there's parts of the, the Bible that you're like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. No, that's not what I'm talking about here. We have to have a different metric that isn't based on just our own personal preference. And what I'm suggesting is what Jesus gives us, to love God and to love your neighbor. Let, let me explain it another way. Um, Micah 6.8 says it like this. He has shown you, immortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require? You know, like, what, is, what does God want from us? When we ask the question, what does God want from us? This is one of our church's, like, theme verses. He says, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? To love neighbor and to love God. That's how you could summarize that verse in a slightly different way. Here's another way you could summarize it, and I want to spend just a few seconds with this. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, said, said it like this. Do no harm, do good, and keep the ordinances of God. The ordinances of God, uh, you, could, you could say, like our um, spiritual disciplines. There's certain things that we've learned over the centuries that you should just keep doing even when they don't feel great. You know, come to church, you know, spend time in prayer, you know, you can fill in, you know, and we're a little bit more flexible than I think John Wesley was, no offense to him, but like, you know, but there are certain practices I would encourage you that like, there are certain practices we should just keep doing. That, that help us stay in love with God. But as far as loving our neighbor as ourself, two ways to do it. Do no harm and do good. So here's what I mean. Don't just throw things away because you don't like them. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you wouldn't be the first Christian to say, nah, not for me. I've never met a Christian who did that. I've preached on this before. I'm just being candid with you. I've never met a Christian who sold everything they had and gave it to the poor. That's interesting, right? Have you? Maybe you have. I, I preached on this once before, and someone said I did. I knew one person. I was like, oh, great. Out of a whole church, we know one person who sold everything they had and gave it to the poor. No, most of us find a way to justify not doing that, right? For a lot of reasons, right? And there's some good reasons not to do it. I think if we put, it, we put those back up, the do no harm, do good, let's use this filter, for example. Selling everything you have and giving to the poor, sure. Not fun, don't really want to do it. Let's ask the different question. Do no harm. Would it hurt people if I sold everything I had and gave it to the poor? Well, we're a church of nuance. I've read When Helping Hurts. There is, there is a way in which you can give that hurts people. There's also a way in which you give that could be very helpful. Imagine if more of us were generous sacrificially generous in the world. How, would, that, would that hurt people, or would that make the world a better place? I think some of it has to do with your motives, what's going on in your life, whether you're being forced to do it, whether you'd put your family at risk. There's a lot of factors involved, but generally speaking, if we're really honest, being extremely sacrificially generous makes the world a better place. Yeah, I get there's nuance to it, but generally speaking, being sacrificially generous absolutely makes a better, and I would add, really helps you grow in your relationship with God. It's a spiritual discipline, it's an ordinance, it's a practice that can actually help you grow. See how this is different than just like throwing out stuff that you don't like? It's thinking critically and thinking, okay, does this help the world become a better place? All right, let's take one more controversial. Does hating LGBTQ people, does that cause harm? Choosing to love LGBTQ people, does that make the world a better place? 
Does it help you fall more in love with God and understand God better? Do you see what I'm saying? As you start to think about this and you're wrestling with the things in your life that you maybe need to wrestle with or change, it's not about, you know, and, 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 and traditionalists or people that like to just keep things the way they always are. There's, there's a, there's, I'm not completely against that. Um, I think there's value in tradition. But those who want to hold on to everything that's always was will typically accuse someone like me. I was like, well, you're just picking and choosing. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm engaging in very important and rigorous, rigorous theological conversation in the context of community around how we can have the best, like how we can create the best good in the world. What does it really mean to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself? So in a lot of times, faith deconstruction is downsizing. So I believe you can find wisdom in a lot of different places. So I went online to find tips on how to downsize your actual home. And not everything they suggested was helpful for our faith, but there were some pieces of advice that I thought were particularly interesting. And here's six of them that I found on a couple different blogs, all right? So I'll read these and I'm gonna talk about these. Here's some just good practical tips for downsizing your faith. If you really gotta ask yourself, what's most important? The first one is take an inventory of your belongings. Well, and they, they often talk about going room by room. Number two, create a plan to get rid of unwanted items. Three, create a plan to get rid of sentimental items. I thought that was very interesting. There are some things in our faith that you just don't want, and maybe for good reason. There's other things that you probably shouldn't have, you don't need anymore, but they're still, you're, you know, you're still sentimental. You know, we asked this question in the survey, what are some things that you uh, know aren't true about God, but you tend to believe anyways? You know, that's one way to ask that question. Um, I remember talking to somebody about this, and, you know, uh, it could be as simple or as silly as things as like, well, I know it doesn't matter if you wear a hat in church, but when people wear hats in church, it still bothers me. You know, like, like it doesn't matter. Like, I know it doesn't matter, but it still bothers me. Or um, when people give me a hard time about wearing jeans while preaching, which is nobody in our community, but in other churches, it's very common. You know, like, you're just holding on to things because they're valuable to you and they're not, they're not useful to anyone. Uh, consider your new lifestyle. So, like, think about the life you want to live and then, you know, downsize accordingly. Give yourself plenty of time and bring in help if needed. These are generally good advice if you're downsizing your home, but also if you're downsizing your faith. So let's, let's start with number one. Take an inventory of your belongings. And oftentimes they're like, go room by room. So how does that work in our faith? It's very simple. I, you could start as simple as just starting a journal and writing down the assumptions and the beliefs that you have about God that you have about people, that you have about maybe other religions, about yourself, about rest of the rest of creation. What are the assumptions and beliefs that you already have? And, and, and really spend some time, and as you think of things, just keep adding them to the list. You can't really like jettison beliefs until you've named them, right? So write those down, and, and, and you know, just like you're downsizing a home, you gotta take an inventory. What are we gonna keep? What are we not? Well, first I gotta figure out what I have. I got to go through all the cabinets and I got to go through all of the, you know, figure it all out. And so you're just really kind of developing a list of what is it that you believe? And some of that stuff you'll find that maybe isn't biblical at all. And some of it is even maybe hurtful to you or others. Number two, create a plan to get rid of unwanted items. You know, what toxic theologies have you inherited? No bad people here. It's just you've, you've, you've inherited some toxic theologies. So create a plan for how you're going to get rid of them. Number three, create a plan for to get rid of those sentimental items like we talked about. What are those toxic theologies that you, you actually tend to like, but you need to get rid of? 
And this is hard. You know, I think this, uh, it's not about even necessarily liking it, it's about it being sentimental. And so like when we go through, I'll just be very candid with you, when we go through anti-racism work, or when we go through anti-patriarchy work, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a white male. And, and there's certain privileges and tendencies that I just operate out of, and it's really hard to kind of like work through that and work through those assumptions and really challenge myself. And I don't always get it right, and I'm figuring it out, but it, it's not about it even being sentimental. It's just about it being like so ingrained into how I was raised. And you know, so we're all, we're all doing the best we can, and we're working through it. And that's, that's, the, that's the goal, is having that plan to work through it. Consider your new lifestyle. So think about it like this. One of the things that you guys said in the survey quite a bit was evangelism that you were taught that evangelism was the, the primary practice of faith, that the number one thing God wanted you to do was to convert your friends and your neighbors to Christ. So as you consider a new lifestyle as somebody who's walking with Jesus, maybe one of the things you want is to not feel pressure to evangelize your non-Christian friends. Does anyone, else, does anyone kind of feel that? Like, I just don't want to feel the pressure to, to convert my non-Christian friends, okay? Anyone there? I'm getting a few heads. All right. So you have to think about, okay, that's where I want to be. Now you need good theology to help you get there. So let me tell you two things that are core to who I am that relieve me of that pressure. All right? This is the theology I'm building my house back up with. Here's, here's one. I believe that God loves everyone and that every single person is created in the image of God. It's core. It's core belief for me. And everything that I've tossed away, I've held on to that. God loves everyone, and that every person is, is, is a beloved child of God, created in the image of God. This is, this is essential to me. And that, that, that helps with the pressure. But there's one other thing that really helps me with the pressure. I also believe, this is a core belief, <laughs> that I am not God. I cannot overstate this. And don't brush that off. This is a big one. I believe that I am not God, which means that I am not responsible for other people's spiritual lives or changing someone's heart or mind. That's just not what God's asking me for. As a, I like to say, it's above my pay grade. And I'm a pastor, but it is above my pay grade. I, I, I do not... And that, probably even more so than knowing that God loves everyone, relieves me of an immense amount of pressure to try to convert people is it's just, not, it's, it's just not my job. It's not my, that's between them and God. Where, wherever they're at, whatever they're, you know, my job, going back to the filter, the basic filter is what? To love God and to love others as myself. And changing people's mind is not, and I, I'm, this is coming from, I'm, I'm like, I'm charismatic some days, and I'm pretty smart some days, and I could even be persuasive. And yet I have learned that I can't change people's minds. So if you're still holding out hope that you can change people's minds, I am praying for you. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you hear what I'm saying? I'm joking a little bit, but like, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, it's just not... It's not what God wants for you, and it's not what God wants for me. So, you know, consider your new lifestyle, where you're heading, and we have to ask the question, what are the theology that helps us get there? Good theology, even what I would consider orthodox theology. There's nothing unorthodox about the idea that, that everyone was created in the image of God and that I'm not God. That's pretty orthodox, right? And it relieves me of an immense amount of stuff. The last two ones I'm not going to say much about. 
They're just very good advice, whether you're downsizing a home or downsizing your faith to what's really important. Give yourself plenty of time. There's no timer here. And I want you to know that if you're here and you're in the, the middle of it or you're in the, somewhere in the journey of like questioning or wrestling or deconstructing, or, there, there's no pressure. You certainly don't have to have it figured out by the time we finish the series next week. That's not our intent. You are on your own journey, and, it's, and you're not by yourself. We're doing this together. But you can give yourself plenty of time, and I hope that the last one rings true for you as well. Bring in help if needed. And I said this last week. I'm going to reiterate it again. I'm here, and I would love to talk. But one of the biases you need to know about me, one of the things that I'm paid to do, like part of my profession, is to help build up the structure that holds our faith. That's, that's what I do. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a teacher by heart. So I'm not always great at listening without contributing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I try hard, don't get me wrong, but I'm not always great. And my job is to kind of like, well, this is actually what we believe. Here at Central City, you can believe whatever you want, but I want you to know what I believe, and I want you to know what our church believes. Like, I want to do that. That's why, though, if you weren't here last week, I brought up John Kuhn to talk about spiritual direction. Because we are a church, capital C, and we have lots of different roles. So you know kind of where I'm at. I want to listen, but I also feel responsible to teach and to explain. That's part of my, that's why I get up here and do this every week. But there are people who are able to just listen without judgment, without any agenda, and that's where spiritual direction can be really, really useful. So I'm willing to listen, but I'm really great if you want to know what, what I believe. I'd love to tell you about it. Uh, I'd love to tell you what the church believes. If you want someone who just let you process out loud and not get to, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm still learning this because in marriage, your spouse doesn't usually want you to come up with answers. Have the rest of you learned this already? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't want to be gender specific, but is it kind of a guy thing? Or is it not? It's a little bit, I'm getting a few nods. And I want to just solve all of her problems. And I want to solve yours too. So, but there are spaces where that might not be the help that you need. And you can create space for that by signing up for spiritual direction. John Kuhn, John at centralcity.co, would love to connect with you. He's um, a staff at our church, but he doesn't attend our church, which actually puts him in a great place to offer spiritual direction in our community um, because he typically doesn't offer it to people he goes to church with for obvious reasons, but he's just, our, uh, he's just a staff person. He actually attends Alyssa's church, which, side note, is gathering for worship outside, and I guess the rain. Um, so prayers for them as they start... I think it was at 10, so they're 20 minutes into their service, so we should have prayed for them already. But many of you know Alyssa, and they're planning a church, Circle of Hope. John's a part of that community, and that's how we met him. But I encourage you that whatever it is you're wrestling with, that you bring in help if needed, whether that be a friend, myself, another staff person, a small group leader. Um, it's important to find people that you trust, that you can talk with um, and be honest with. Next week, we're going to finish our series, and we're going to talk about a little bit more how we build our faith back up. Um, we're going to be doing this really creative worship element that I encourage you to, uh, to come and be a part of um, as we think about the things in our life that, that are really essential, the parts of our faith that are really important. What does it mean 
to follow Jesus and to take that seriously enough to take the words of Jesus seriously enough when he says to love God and love neighbor summarizes all the law and the prophets. I hope that you'll uh, be a part of that with us. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we give you thanks. God, we we ask that you would help us um, Sometimes the work ahead of us can feel overwhelming and there's so many moving pieces and questions and confusion that we don't even know where to begin. Meet us in that. Help us to slow down, to take a few breaths, to know that we are loved, that you're not uncomfortable with our questions or our doubts, that you're not threatened by our frustrations or our hurt, you are patient and loving. You know exactly what it feels like to be human. To cry out, to hurt. Remind us, Lord. Help us to continue to grow and be your people. You've called us to be like your son, Jesus. Go out into the world to love those we come in contact with, to find faith in whatever home we enter, whatever person we come across that we're able to love and be present. Help us tear down the walls that would prevent us from doing that. That we might be more like your son, who lived and died and rose again. Give us that resurrection life. In your name we pray. Amen.